Would you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each and every one of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. I wonder, how do you pray? Over the last couple of months, I have had the honor of joining some of our families at this church around their dinner tables. Not surprisingly, when it comes time to eat, everyone turns to me and asks me to pray. Not surprisingly, I turn it around to the children and say, well, do you have a favorite prayer that you like to pray when you pray? Let me tell you, there are some creative ones out there, like the Superman prayer. Thank you, Lord, for giving us food. Thank you, Lord, for giving us friends. I'll spare you, your ears, the rest. Or the prayer that many of our children who are here for school or in their classrooms on Sunday mornings sing before their snack that goes, God our Father, God our Father. In the first service, there were kids that started following after me, so we will teach you that one so you can join in as well. Now, when I was a youth minister for a short stint, I made it a point to never be the one who prayed. The youth did it. And so sometimes, because they were youth, they had to be voluntold to pray. And I did this by drawing their names out of a jar so that everyone had equal opportunity. Some of their favorites were, good food, good meat, good God, let's eat. Or, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, amen. Now, I have shared a couple of meals with our youth at this church, and they are excellent prayer givers. So you guys sitting up here don't think that you can get away with some of these rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub prayers. Some of my earliest memories in our family um, involved us sitting around the dinner table. Even when my younger brother and I were little, we were expected to take part in the family rotation of prayer before meals. And when we were small, it was something like, God is great, God is good. But eventually, it was expected that our prayers would mature as we did. Prayers were an important part of our family growing up, but I don't remember my parents ever sitting my brother and me down and saying, children, this is how you pray. We just prayed. Our passage for this morning begins with the disciples asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. This isn't surprising, especially for the disciples in Luke, because Luke, more than any other gospel, shares Jesus praying more than any of the other ones that we read. In Luke, we often see Jesus going away to pray or to separate himself from the crowd. And so as the disciples in Luke were following Jesus, they saw this. And in our scripture, we saw that John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. So naturally, Jesus' disciples wanted to know this as well. And so Jesus did what Jesus does and took a simple request and turned it into a teachable moment. Now, we are on week four of a series on parables, and so you all at least should have expected this to happen. But before we get to the parable, I'd like to highlight a couple of things about this prayer that Jesus shares first. First, Jesus invites his disciples, and by extension invites us, to refer to God the same way that he does as a parent. 
We belong to God, and therefore we should trust God and trust that God wants us to have what is good and life-giving. We get to address God the way a child would ask a parent for something. Then we, are asked, we ask God to truly take charge of our lives with the phrase, Thy kingdom come. This is something that God wants to give us. But until you and I enter the kingdom of heaven, we as Christ followers are to proclaim that heaven has come to earth through the life of Christ. The last section of this prayer takes a shift and focuses on daily needs, food, forgiveness, and faithfulness. Now, it might seem a little odd to go from asking God to send his kingdom of heaven to earth and then to shift to asking for daily bread, but I think that's the point that Jesus is making. We can go from asking God for something so big to asking God for heaven, and then we can ask God to provide us something that is one of our basic necessities, like food. But we aren't told to pray for a five-course meal. We are told to pray for daily bread, which reminds me of the story that we hear in Exodus when the people of God are traveling in the desert and they are hungry, and so God sends them manna for that one day. God provided. So yes, we should be asking God to meet our daily needs, but I also wonder if this section of the prayer is meant to remind us about how God is already meeting these daily needs. I wonder if this part of the prayer is to wake us up to the day-to-day things we do, like eating, and how God's presence is already with us in those moments. The next of the daily needs is focused on forgiveness, which is also a big deal in Luke. But we not only ask forgiveness for ourselves, we ask for help in forgiving those who have done wrong to us. Because you need both. Not because God is only going to forgive those who have first forgiven others, but because we should be modeling God's mercy to the world. And I think we will find that when we forgive others, we open ourselves up to experience God's love more fully in others and in ourselves. And finally, we ask God to keep us from harm, for God to be faithful. But the same spirit who led Jesus in the desert during his temptation is the one that is guiding us now. I don't think that it is a mistake that this is the last part of the prayer. We must first be willing to enter into a close relationship with God, like addressing God as father or as mother or as parent. We praise God's name, and then we ask God for the things we need. There's an order to this. Now, you may have noticed that this prayer is much shorter than the other example of prayer we have, which we can find in the Gospel of Matthew. One writer that I was reading this week said that she thinks that we should call this prayer the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer. Maybe Jesus in Luke knows that the disciples need things to be a little bit simpler, and this version of the prayer is much more down-to-earth than the one we receive in Matthew. So now, you all know how to pray. Or do we? All of the disciples asked for was a teaching on how to pray. Jesus has given them that. But then we get a parable. Let's say you have a friend, and you knock on his door at midnight and ask him for some groceries. Now, I don't know about all of you, but I would be less than thrilled with someone knocking on my door at midnight 
In fact, my neighbors were having a not-so-quiet gathering last night around midnight, and I was not a happy camper. Thank God for coffee. But anyway, you go to your friend, knock on his door, and ask him for food because a friend of yours has shown up and you have nothing to offer. Now, something to know about this culture that we are in is that in this time period, hospitality was of the utmost importance. It didn't matter who showed up to your door and at what time, you were expected to welcome them in and to provide them with something to eat. Now, I know that all of us are good Georgians and have good Southern hospitality, but our friends are also good Georgians and have good hospitality and so probably aren't showing up to our doors unexpectedly at midnight or 1 a.m. or later. And so this might be a hard concept for us to grasp. But in other cultures, hospitality is the center. In a previous church I was in, there was a large population of Burmese-rooted refugees that were involved in our church. And whenever any of the American-born folks would show up at their house, they received hospitality. Now, although it is typical in Asian culture for folks to sit on the floor when they are visiting or when they are eating, when we would show up, chairs would magically appear for us to sit in. And it didn't matter what time of day it was, you were going to be fed food, and really, really good food. I didn't know that it was acceptable to eat fried chicken at 10 o'clock in the morning, but you can, and it is acceptable, and it's even expected. I remember one time that I was going to visit a new family to our church. They had just arrived in the United States from Malaysia from a refugee camp. They were provided with an apartment, but that was it. They had two young children, Sarah, who was about 18 months, and Joseph, who was four. And these children had no toys. So a couple of the families donated some toys, and I traveled to their apartment to welcome them, not just to Richmond, but to America, and to give them something that would make them feel a little more at home. I arrived, I knocked on the door, and they were so embarrassed that they had nothing to offer me. They spoke very little English, but the dad managed to say, sorry, no chair yet. I told them it wasn't a problem, and I sat down on the floor and began to play with Sarah and and Joseph. The wife hurried into the kitchen and returned with a bottle of water. I said, oh no, it's okay, I'm fine, I don't need anything. And the dad said, please, for you. This family had nothing They had arrived in the United States with two suitcases that contained everything that they owned. They had no furniture, no cookware, no common language with me, and yet they showed me some of the most gracious hospitality I have ever received. And for that, it has changed the way that I welcome people into my house. And so when this friend shows up at his neighbor's house asking for food, it's more than just a favor. He's asking for his friend to help him save face, essentially. And the neighbor says, go away, I'm already in bed. So while we may think that it is the friend who is the one being hospitable, it's actually the neighbor who is behaving worse. The friend is at least trying to welcome his late arriving guest. But his neighbor knows the situation and is saying, tough luck, figure it out. But something changes, and eventually the neighbor gets up because his friend won't give up. 
At the end of verse 8, we read, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. The word persistence in Greek is anaideon, and it can also be translated as shamelessness, which is a totally different connotation. Shamelessness implies that you know the person and you are willing to be bold with them. Like when I went to Abigail's eighth birthday party and I didn't bring a gift. Because, parents of the church, it is my policy when I am invited to your child's birthday party, I will arrive and attend with a card, but not a gift, because gifts are expensive, and there's a lot of children, and that can add up over time. So I was at Abigail's party, and she's opening her presents, and as she gets close to the end of the pile, she looks at the presents that are left, and she scans the entire room, And she hones in, and with some weird eight-year-old sixth sense, she looks right at me and says, well, you didn't bring me a present, did you? Shamelessness at its finest, at least for Abigail, maybe not Abigail's parents. So what do we learn from this parable? That if we keep on praying and asking God for what we need, that God is going to give in? Well, I don't think so. I do think that we should take away that the most important thing is to approach God like God is someone we know, and be bold in what you pray for, whether it is something big like the kingdom of heaven or something small like daily bread, God is ready to hear what is on our hearts. Now, some of you might be sitting there saying, yeah, but God already knows what I'm praying before I ask. Well, yes, this is true. But I don't think that that is why Jesus is offering this parable. I think the goal was for Jesus to teach his disciples who to pray to, not what to pray. Jesus was more interested in offering an invitation to pray, not an explanation about prayer. Because when we pray, we are invited into a relationship with God And scripture tells us that God knows our needs without being asked, but we are still being invited into this relationship to speak our prayers into existence with confidence, knowing that our relationship with God can handle hearing these things. In fact, I believe that our relationship with God depends on hearing them. Verses 9 and 10 might be the most difficult part of this passage, I wonder if any of you started singing Seek Ye First when you heard these verses read by Lisa a few moments ago. Trust me, I've been singing it all week and I've got you covered. Verses 9 and 10 say, Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who searches finds. Everyone who knocks will have a door opened. But I bet there are many of you who have prayed with your whole heart for something to happen, and it still hasn't. And I'm not just talking about praying that you'll get an A on this test at school or praying that you'll get a parking space close to the front of the store. I'm talking about the big stuff, too. God, please heal my body from cancer. God, please let me be able to have a child. God, please help me feel safe in my own community. Now, I might be the new kid around here, 
but I have heard some of your prayers, and they are all important and all serious. And there are times when we feel like there is no answer from the God we are praying to. Trust me, these days I feel like I'm praying the same thing over and over and over again and waiting for a response, and there's nothing. And I know that I'm not the only one. So if God is a loving parent, like Jesus tells us, then why don't our prayers go unanswered? Friends, I wish I had an answer. I really do. We offer simple answers all the time, but there aren't simple answers. Jesus himself has prayed for daily bread and for God's kingdom to come, but there are still hungry people all over the world, and wars continue to rage on. If we say, well, everything happens for a reason, that implies that God's will, even the evil or tragic or devastating results, are because of God's will. Hopefully we believe that God can bring good out of evil. For some of us, that is the only hope we have to hold on to. So you may be asking, well, what's the point? I'm going to pray my hardest and it still might not happen. Friends, it's not about what we are praying, which is important, but more importantly, it is about who we are praying to. Prayer is not about communication with God. It's about communion with God. Anne Lamont says in her book, Traveling Mercies, the two best prayers we have to offer are thank you, thank you, thank you, and help me, help me, help me. Jesus invites us into honest prayer because we trust the one we are praying to. So maybe we have been praying wrong, friends. Maybe the goal of prayer is not to fill in God of everything we need and to give God our laundry list of wants and needs and desires, but to enter into a deeper, more honest, more trusting relationship with God, our parent, who is the provider of all that is good, and protector of all who are in need. Through prayer, we receive a greater peace about situations beyond our control, and we have a more profound confidence in God's providence, even when we cannot yet see the answer to our prayers. So brothers and sisters, be persistent, be bold, be shameless in your prayers. Don't give up. Trust in God's loving purpose for you. God knows it already, but depends on you to share it. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to today's Sermon of the Week. Be sure to follow us online at fbcdecatur.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed week.